Thank you very much for that puppet show. I enjoyed that very much.、Um, and it was actually the perfect theme for our sermon、um, today, because the sermon is called "The Cost of Discipleship: What It Means to Follow Jesus," and it's all about,、um, yeah, what does it mean to be a child of God, to be in God's army? What does it mean to be a disciple? So, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Is a disciple someone who believes in God? Is everyone who attends church a disciple? Does the fact that I have membership to the Coburg Leisure Center mean that I am an active athlete? <laughs> and you're smiling because those of you who know me know I haven't gone for nine months, and I'm wasting my money there. In fact, I had to cancel last time、uh, because I just spent so much money because I don't go. Does the fact that I actually watched a footy game on TV once this year does that mean that I am a sports fan, or the fact that I attended a three-hour soccer tournament last Saturday does that make me a sports fan? Not really, because those of you who know me know that I don't care about sports at all, and that I was there mainly to talk to Birdie. <laughs> the fact that we attend church, or the fact that we believe in God, the fact that I believe exercise is great for you, and I tell everybody else to do it, and I wholeheartedly believe in it, and yet I don't do it. What, does that make me someone who's actually active, physically active? Does the fact that I have membership to the gym make me someone who is、um, physically active? And I want to propose that a disciple is not the same thing as a believer. That someone who believes in God, or even someone who attends church, or someone who is even serving church, doesn't necessarily mean that person is a disciple. So then the question becomes: Who is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? To answer that question, we're going to go to the book of Matthew. We're doing a five-part,、uh, five-week series on the book of Matthew, and the question is: Who is Matthew? And、uh, Matthew was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. And last week, Roy shared about how,、um, even though the book of Matthew doesn't say that he wrote the book, there's internal and external evidence to show that it was indeed Matthew. And who was Matthew? We find out that Matthew、um, was one of the one of the twelve disciples. So before he became a disciple of Jesus. What was he doing? Matthew chapter nine verse nine says, "As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, 'Follow me.' And so he rose and followed him. So we find out that Matthew was a tax collector. All right. Well, what's what's the big deal about that? Well, in that in that、uh, day." The Jews were under the Roman authority. In other words, the Roman Empire had conquered the country of Israel, and so,、uh, much to their chagrin, they had Roman soldiers. They had limitations on their assemblies, their laws, their governance,、um, and even to a certain point, their religious practices. There were always Roman soldiers that、um, that supervised, and if the Roman Empire Um, required, for example, for everyone to go to a certain place to be、um, counted for the census, they had to obey. And if the empire said you have to pay taxes, they had to pay taxes. And what the Roman Empire did was because、uh, you know they couldn't physically come and collect all the taxes themselves, they would hire Jewish individuals to collect the taxes for them. Now, because the Jewish nation, as many nations, had pride in who they were and were very upset with the Roman Empire, they viewed that job of tax collector as a traitor to their country. 
So tax collectors were seen as traitors to their own people, and on top of that, oftentimes not every tax collector, but most tax collectors would take a little bit extra when they collected taxes to put into their pockets. So not only were they seen as traitors, they were also seen as thieves. So they were kind of looked down upon as the scum of society, right? And that's who Matthew was. Matthew was one of those individuals that most people in his day would not look up to. Uh, Matthew was one of those people that would not get invited to the parties, would not be considered someone that would be escorted to the front of the synagogue. Matthew was one of those individuals that would be ostracized in society, and he would have felt that. But then Jesus comes along to this tax collector, to Matthew, and he says, Come, follow me. And Matthew leaves his tax office. He might have been in the middle of counting the money. He leaves that table, and he follows Jesus. He follows Jesus for three and a half years. Now, to us, living in 2015, that might sound very strange. Why would Jesus call this guy? And why would he get up, leave everything, and follow him? And in, in order to understand that, let me explain a little bit about first century Jewish religion, religious education. So in the first century that um, Jesus lived in, The Israelites had a system of education so that boys and some girls from wealthy families who could afford to would go to school. Now, school consisted of memorizing, reading, and learning how to read and write the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, um, the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You have to realize that back then there weren't very many books. And the books, the few books they did have were the scriptures, the ones that they had preserved carefully for hundreds and thousands of years. And so they would use the scriptures to learn how to read and write, and they were taught to memorize them. In addition to memorizing them, they were taught then, once they had it retained in their minds, how do we interpret this? So for 13 years, they would learn how to do that. And some of you have maybe attended a bar mitzvah. At 13 years old, a boy would then be considered old enough to... Um, move on from his education into a trade. And so um, oftentimes what would happen is the rabbi, which is the Hebrew word for teacher, um, would determine, is this child especially bright? Is this child apt in understanding how to interpret scripture? And that rabbi would kind of keep an eye on all the children to see who were the best and the brightest, who had the most promise in terms of their ability to memorize and understand and interpret the scriptures. So at the age of 13, uh, the girls would return back home and uh, learn you know, whatever needed to be learned in the home in preparation for marriage. The boys would either go back home to learn their family trade, whether it be carpentry or blacksmith, whatever it may be, Or if their family trade was not what they were interested in, um, they would then go to another master and live with that master to learn their trade. They would do so until they're about 15 years old. Um, and around 15 years old, the rabbis would pick the brightest and most promising of the students who were able to wrestle and ask good questions of the text. And these rabbis would, would invite these um, exceptional students to what was called the Bet Midrash, the house of study. It was his small group. So the rabbi would say, I see great promise in you three, you three come with me. 
and then he would have a special study with them. So then those three, in addition to learning a trade, would take extra time to study the scriptures with the rabbi. Sometimes in order to support that student, um, as that student continues to study, the family, and in, in fact, sometimes the entire village would come together to support that person. It was considered such an honor for the village if one of their students got selected that, you know, aunts and uncles and et cetera would pitch in so that that child could really take that time to study. At 18, um, the young man could marry, um, and sometimes the wife would then support the husband to go be able to study. At 20, um, he could start a vocation himself, and at 30, he was able to have authority over others. So it's not a coincidence that Jesus starts teaching his and, and doing his preaching ministry at the age of 30. Until then, he was at home with his father and mother being a carpenter. Now, out of this group of bed, Midrash, the small group, the, the rabbi would you know, have his small group, he would observe, and then he would say, ah, you especially outshine even this group. Then, those very special individuals, he would then call to be his Talmud, which is disciple. And that was a very special relationship between the Talmud and the rabbi. That was special than the whole small group or even with anyone else. Because that Talmud then would be called to have a personal relationship with the rabbi where that disciple would follow the rabbi wherever the rabbi goes. They would travel together extensively. They would, you know, sleep under the same roof. They would eat the same food. And what would happen is disciple, the Talmud would watch what the rabbi is doing and ask questions. Rabbi, why would you, why do you eat that way? Or why do you say that to your wife? Like, Everything in that rabbi's life, relationships, lifestyle, belief, worldview, values, the disciple would ask questions. How do you do it this way? Why do you do it this way? And then the rabbi would explain. And it would also go the other way. The rabbi would observe the disciple's life. Mm, I see, Andy, that uh, you like to cross your arms when you're listening. Why do you do that? Okay. Why do you do that? And, and then the disciple would have to answer, well... I feel uncomfortable because you're in my face, right? <laughs> or whatever it may be. And the, and the rabbi would really draw out of the, of the disciple their motivations, their um, values, their beliefs. And so it was this very personal, um, intimate, Talmud, rabbi, disciple, teacher relationship that was going on in the first century. Now with this in mind, when we go back to Matthew and Jesus, and we look at how Jesus comes to Matthew, you have to ask the question, did Matthew consider this a privilege or a burden? Based on what you just heard. Was this a privilege or a burden? It's a trick question. The answer is both. <laughs> because on the one hand, it's a great privilege, because only the brightest and the best were selected. And it was considered a great honor um, because the Jewish nation embraced spirituality and religious um, practices. And so to be selected as someone who's going to become the next religious leader was considered a great privilege. But on the other hand, there was a great cost to that discipleship. 
because you would have to leave behind your family, not forever, but you know, for extensive times to go travel with this person. The disciples, the 12 disciples of Jesus, um, traveled with Jesus for three and a half years. Now, there are times when you get to go home and see your family, etc. But it, it did mean, it's like having a uni experience, when sometimes you have to leave home, go to a different city. In America, we do this. In Australia, not so much. But in America, 18, everyone's dying to get out. 18 years old, they usually pick like the uni that's on the other side of the country. <laughs> <laughs> to be as far away from family as possible. And we all live together off campus, learning to, you know, be together, um, learn together. And so it, it was kind of like that. Being a disciple, being a Tamid meant you left behind what you had and you're willing to completely surrender um, everything you know in order to learn everything that the Master wants to teach you. When Jesus called Matthew to come and follow him, Matthew jumped up and went. There was no hesitation. Because Matthew knew that being called to be a disciple wasn't just a privilege of getting to see the master. In fact, the real purpose of a master calling a Talmud was to make that Talmud the next rabbi. In other words, the reason why the teacher has that kind of intimate relationship with the student is because that disciple is being groomed to be a replica of the teacher. So that when the teacher gets old and dies, then that disciple is going to take over the legacy and continue the work. So when Matthew is called by Jesus to come and follow him, Matthew understands that Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you like me. And Jesus was healing people. Jesus was preaching. Jesus had authority. And Matthew knew, wow, what a privilege that I get to be I get to be that part of that intimate circle that gets to observe everything, to ask questions and learn, but also I'm going to be trained and equipped to be like Jesus. It was a privilege, and it was also, there was also a great cost. The rabbis all had different ways of interpreting the scriptures. Um, and one of the reasons why they would have this elaborate system of discipleship is because they wanted to, to convey their understanding of scripture to the next generation. And interestingly enough, they called that system of interpretation a yoke. Now, typically when we think of a yoke, we think about oxen. Well, typically we don't think about yoke at all. But back then, when you thought of a yoke, there would be kind of two, two ideas. A yoke um, meant there's two oxen. And they would have that piece of um, wood that slips over the heads of the two cows. And that way, when they are yoked together, usually they would put um, kind of an older, wiser one with the younger one. And what would happen is that when you're farming and you want, you know, you're, you're um, telling the cows to turn right. I think it's like G and Ha, whatever it is. And so you're telling them, and then the wiser, older one, because that one's been trained, will turn. And the other one has no choice because the neck is connected. And, it, and so with that nudging, oh, okay, I'm going this way, all right? And so that's what I meant to be yoked together, these two oxen. And that's how the younger cow learned. Ah, when I hear G, I turn right. And when I hear Ha, I turn left. Um, and so when the rabbis taught they called their system of interpretation of the scripture the yoke. And this wasn't just what the Bible says. Because remember, by the age of 13, most Israelites had memorized, um, especially if they had been in school. Not everyone was in school. But if you had been in school, you would have memorized the entire Hebrew scriptures by the age of 13. Most, if not all of it. 
Um, so that's Genesis all the way to Malachi. So that's like this much. They had memorized it. Um, so it wasn't a matter of what do you know, but it was rather how do you interpret that and apply it to the daily life. So each rabbi had their own interpretation of this is what it means to keep the Sabbath, or this is what it means to... to um, you know, to do the sanctuary system this way, or this is what it means to um, honor God or to honor your parents. And so each rabbi applied the scriptures in a certain way. And so, for example, if Rabbi Gamaliel, who was a real person, a real rabbi in um, those days, if he had his Talmud, his disciples, his selected few, he would give them his yoke. He would say, take my yoke upon you. And then they would emptied everything that they had been taught as children, everything that their peers taught them, and they would say, okay, Rabbi, teach us. Why do you think that way? And then they would absorb everything the teacher would tell them. So then when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's a very confusing verse, because a yoke means work, right? A yoke is put on the oxen when they're plowing the farm, and a yoke was given to the disciples so that they can learn the rabbi's worldview. So Jesus is saying, I want you to take my worldview. I want you to interpret scriptures the way I interpret scriptures. I want you to see people the way I see people. I want you to understand reality the way that I understand reality. I want you to know God the Father the way I know God the Father. And so Jesus has so much to teach the disciples. And so it sounds like a lot of work. It sounds difficult. But then he calls it easy and light. Why? We're talking about the cost of discipleship we know the cost of discipleship is, 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 is heavy. It's expensive in the sense that you, you have to surrender your own interests for the sake of following and adopting what Christ wants. But why then is it easy? And we find the answer in verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. When the two oxen are plowing the field, if you have one um, you know, cow that's particularly angry, right, to be plowing that day. You know, I wanted to eat some hay and relax in the, in the barn, and here now they have to come out in the field and plow. And if that, if that cow is not happy, and it's yoked with that younger, you know, cow that doesn't really know what they're doing, and this cow doesn't listen to the master, and he's rough when he turns, right? Very tough for the little one, right? Because you're yoked together. And so if one of them decides, you know what? I've had enough, I'm going to run away. And this would sometimes happen on the farm. And, and one of the cows starts running. The other one, you can see the terror in that little cow's eyes. Like doesn't want to run, but because it's been yoked together, it has no choice but to run along, right? And it's very difficult. On the other hand, when it's yoked with a gentle, and this is, you know, wise farmers would know, to yoke the young cows with a gentle, wise, kind of, um, you know, the really mellow cows that when they turn, they're very... They turn slowly. They make sure the little cow keeps along so that it's not being yanked by the neck, but that it's gently being guided. And so when Jesus says, I am gentle, Jesus is not saying that what he's going to teach you is, you know, a walk in the park. But what he's saying is what I'm going to teach you is going to be easy because I'm a good teacher. 
How many of you have taken calculus? Calculus? Yeah. Hated calculus. Hated it with all my heart. Um, I had to take calculus, and um, just just because I had to keep up with my genius sister, which was very annoying, um, just to keep up with her, I took calculus very early on. You know, everything she did, I tried to follow, just to, you know, otherwise it was not acceptable in my family. And so, um, I took calculus at like age 14 or something ridiculous. And as I remember taking calculus and hating it, hating it, still hate it. And I'm not naturally a mathy kind of a person. Um, I'm more of an English and literature, and so math didn't didn't come naturally to me. And so while I was sitting there, I'm thinking, what is this? What is this theorem? What are, what are these abstract numbers, and what's going on? But I had a teacher who, um, he was a university professor, and he would come to our high school, and um the way he taught, you could tell he was brilliant. You could tell that he knew everything there was to know about calculus. And you could tell from the way that he was able to simplify it for us and just teach us step by step, little concepts, right? Now, there was so much to that, but he was able to teach it to us in a way that we could follow, that we could follow. And so by the end, even though I still hated it, I was able to kind of pretend I could do it. And when Jesus says, learn from me, my burden is, uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus is promising that even though there is a cost to discipleship, because he's going to lead us gently, right? He's going to lead us uh, knowing that what we are capable of. He's going to in- individualize it and personalize each discipleship experience. He's guaranteeing that the experience will not be one where we, we're being jerked around and, and we're lost but that he's going to make sure that we are with him all the way. When Jesus talks about coming and following him, he's not asking people to just do what he does and believe in him. There's something a lot more to what it means to being a disciple. When uh, a disciple was called by the rabbi, that disciple gave up everything. And the central issue of being a disciple of Jesus is a matter of the heart, not behavior or belief. It's not about what we do, not, we, not what we believe in, but the question is, am I willing to surrender, submit for a lifetime every aspect of my life, including worldview, paradigm, career, personality, character, ethics, desires, motivations, values, family, ego, sexuality, and attitudes to the authority of Jesus and his teaching. The question is, am I willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes, whether it's to the cross or to the crown, whether it's to the thorns or to the throne? Am I willing to follow Jesus wherever that may be? Matthew chapter 10 is the second great discourse. We're going through the five discourses in the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives a discourse to the disciples. And it's a hard passage. I struggled with this passage. I told Roy early on in this passage, I don't want to preach this one. You preach this one. Because it's, it's got some hard sayings. But you know what? This week as I struggled with this passage, I've, I've come to love it. Because I realized this is so important. And um, this is, I'm just going to read one section um, of it. I invite you to read the whole chapter at your own time. But Jesus says, it's the hardest part. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh, that's a hard saying. It's a hard saying. What does Jesus mean? Isn't he the Prince of Peace? What, what does he mean that he came not to bring peace but a sword? What does he mean that we have, that he's gonna set the Father against the Son? What is he talking about? He's not saying don't love your family. He's not saying, um, to, to not respect them. He's saying he has to be supreme. He's saying he wants to be loved above all else, above the people in your life, and even above the way you love yourself. He says, anyone who wants to follow me and be my disciple has to be willing to carry your cross and deny yourself. It's a very high calling. Is it worth the cost? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 27, he repeats this and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus says, yes, the cost of disciple is great. He does not, you know, he's not a, a, a sketchy salesman who promises you a lot and delivers little. Jesus is very honest. He says, look, you're going to have to love me more than you love anybody. You're going to have to give up your worldview. You're going to have to give up what you think is right and wrong and, and do what I, I say is right and wrong. You're going to have to give up um, your own selfish desires. And so he makes it very clear. This is the cost. This is the cost. But then he also says, look, this is the cost, but there is a reward. And one of that reward is eternal life. But it's not just eternal life. Eternal life with someone you don't like would be painful, would be hell. He says, eternal life with me. And he's hoping that he is ultimately the prize that we want. You know, three years ago, on almost exactly three years ago, on, on 1st of September 2012, I found out that I was pregnant. That's how I felt. <laughs> September 1st, 2012, and uh, yeah, almost exactly three years ago. And the reason why I, I looked and felt this way is because I had moved to Australia on August 1st. August 1st, September 1st. I had just started my new job. I was told to plant a church. I was so excited. Roy and I had only been married for four months. We were still newlyweds. We had great plans of travel and planting a church in the city and working hard and saving money and buying a house and all that went out the window. I was devastated when I found out I was pregnant. I did not know a single person here. None of you. I had not met any of you. I was, um, Roy was the only person I knew in all of Australia. And I was far from my family, and I'm very close to my family. Far from my family, didn't know the system of health care, didn't have insurance, didn't have Medicare. You guys are all lucky, Australian citizens. And so I was devastated, devastated. You know, a lot of people um, are happy when they find out they're pregnant. I felt like this. <laughs> I felt like this. I knew that I would have to sacrifice. I was mortified of telling my employer because, you know, here they had, like, paid all this money to bring me over and, and believed them in me to, to, to invest in me so I could work. And here I was going to be like, I got my maternity leave. <laughs> um, I 
was devastated because you know there were a few people I had met who were talking about how oh you know people with children like all they talk about is children and so glad none of us have children and I was like oh my goodness I have to tell them I'm pregnant I don't want to and it was a terrible time and while I was struggling to emotionally mentally accept the fact that my life was going to change the morning sickness started and it was bad.、Um, I couldn't even hold down water. I was I was going to the bathroom about forty times a day. I lost five kilos in my first trimester. It was pretty miserable. There was one point when I had so little energy because I was so dehydrated that like I would take off my clothes and I would, it was just and then I would step out and then like there would be like shedding along the way. And I remember Roy came to me one time and he said, "Are you gonna be like this forever?" And I was like so angry because you're also hormonal. And I was like, "What? How could you say that to me?" But you know, when I saw this at 12 weeks, even though it was a blurry, dark blob that looked vaguely alienish, when you hear that heartbeat, you begin to think that the cost of motherhood is worth it. And even though I was still really, really sick at 19 weeks, when I found out that it was going to be a boy, the cost of motherhood. Still very expensive, still very dear, but I believed it was worth it. And you know, I I hadn't met him, and and it was it was almost like this idea that you have to have faith in because at that moment my my stomach was not even that big because I was you know throwing up all the time, and so you have to just believe there's something in there and it's alive, it exists, and that、um, you know that it's gonna be worth it. And you know, we because we found out it was a boy, we started thinking of names. And even though I was using five pillows to prop myself up so that I could sleep without having acid reflux, and even though I had to wear Roy's shoes and clothes because I couldn't fit into any of mine because I just swell up, even though I had carpal tunnel on both my wrists and had to wear braces, it's a good thing none of you knew me back then. I looked terrible.、Um, even though I had to go through all that, I thought the cost of motherhood hopefully is worth it. And by then, I, I wasn't convinced. <laughs> I wasn't sure. And then in my 39th week, I had emergency hemorrhaging. I had contractions that did not lead to labor, so I had to be manually induced, which is very, very painful. They broke my waters, and after hours of incredible pain, I met him. And you know what? To be honest with you, this is、uh, May 10th, so right, nine months of incredible physical drain, emotional drain, financial drain. Um, Twelve thousand dollars to have him at the Royal Melbourne Hospital without insurance and without Medicare,、um, and of course couldn't work. And I don't get—I didn't get maternity、um, leave pay, whatever you call it, because、uh, I hadn't worked long enough, and etc.、Um, despite all that, I met him, and I thought, is motherhood worth it? I still wasn't sure. Still wasn't sure. And you know, to be honest with you, I didn't fall in love with him right away. I know, you know, good mothers like Bronwyn, like moment they see Zach, like, oh, love. No, I didn't feel that way. It took me a while. At first, it was I was very concerned. You know, every rash on his face. Oh no, what, what you know? What do I do? Every、um, cry, like, what do I do? You know,、um, every color of his poo. Like, you'd be amazed when you become a, a parent how obsessed you get about the color of their, you know, poo. And you just, I was, I spent so much time in the first three months just worrying, and it was. Also, you know, no one had told me how how extremely painful and frustrating breastfeeding could be, and so I just I remember it was just so hard. It was so hard, 
And I, um, I loved him in the sense of I took care of him and I, you know, was fond of him. But it wasn't until he was about three months old when he began to giggle and laugh and, you know, play. And uh, it took several months before I fell in love with this guy. And even though we had many sleepless nights when he was sick and he was crying all night and wanted only mommy, um, and even though there are days when he throws tantrums and is stubborn as, when I see this face, and if you were to ask me, is the cost of motherhood worth it? I would say, yeah, it is. It is worth it. And when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you a disciple, and I'm going to make you disciple makers. He actually had the great commission. He says, he says, go out and he says, and make disciples, right? So when Jesus says very clearly, hey, it's going to cost you sometimes your family and friends. Sometimes it's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you your finances, your career, your character. It's going to mean you, you give up things that you want. It's, it's going to mean that you go through things that you don't want to go through. And he's very clear about this. You read Matthew 10. It's tough. There's a reason why you want to preach it because it's a hard message to share with people who are just getting to know Jesus. But I realized I have to share this because Jesus is saying, this is the cost, but I'm worth it. And I want you to get to know me. And you know, some of you are getting to know Jesus and he's like that dark blob on a sonogram picture. You don't really know who he is. There's a vague idea he might exist but you haven't met him yet, right? He's just this idea that you're not very fond of. He's making, he makes you uncomfortable. He's, he's interrupting your life, you know? He's, he's daring to come into your life in a moment that um, you don't really want because you've got your life planned, thank you very much, right? But Jesus is, is, is saying, hey, get to know me, and as I'm growing in your heart, as I'm growing in your mind, right? As you're getting to know me better, he says, I guarantee you're going to fall in love with me. I guarantee you're going to love the person that you meet. And I guarantee that this lifetime commitment, because the cost of motherhood, you pay every single day, every morning when he wakes up (laughs) and cries, Mommy, at 5 a.m., right? When you pay that price every day, you think to yourself, do I want to be a mother today? (laughs) And there's going to be days in your Christian walk where you're going to wonder, where you're going to wonder, oh, is it worth following Jesus? Is it worth, is it worth getting to know Him? Is it worth the trouble of, of wrestling with the text and of going to church and, and giving up the things that I want to follow what Jesus says is right? Is it worth the cost? And I'm telling you, um, as a disciple of Jesus, that it is worth it. It's worth that labor process of getting to know Jesus. And even though right now it's just a vague picture on a sonogram, even though right now it's just um, perhaps a picture of Jesus and not the actual person of Jesus, there's a promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
Love decided long ago, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, that you were worth it. Love decided long ago that you were worth the cost of his life. So when love died on the cross, wanting to save you one day, love decided to call you as a disciple. And that person of Jesus Christ is inviting you into your heart as your Lord and Master. He's asking you to step out in faith, believe that he is worth it, and pay the cost of discipleship, to surrender every aspect of your life, to surrender your way of thinking, to surrender your way of ethics, to surrender your priorities, and to say, Jesus Christ, be my master, be my teacher, be my rabbi. And I hope and pray that you will discover that Jesus is the greatest gift and the greatest blessing that you can have. On a grandma Micah, we thought we were, he was going to be a professional MC. I don't know if you noticed his like hand was like this. Looked like he had a mic in his hand. Like, ah, he'll be a pastor when he grows up. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, so the song of response for this afternoon is called uh, Follow You. Uh, it's written by a gentleman by the name of Michael Preeb. And um, yeah, just as I sing, I just invite you to Think about the words, and I uh, hope that you're blessed by the song. <laughs> Not my will, but yours be done. I'm following the sun I'll trust in you and I will obey And if I'm the only one Until my life is done I'll trust in you and I will follow you Follow you Follow you I'll give my life for you It's the least that I can do Follow you Follow you I'll take my cross and I will follow you my will but yours be done I'm following the sun I'll trust in you and I will obey and if I'm the only one until my life is done I'll trust in you and I will follow you Follow you, follow you I'll give my life for you It's the least that I can do Follow you, follow you I'll take 
cross and I will follow you. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you that you thought we were worth it. You thought we were worth the price of your son's life. And I pray that we would come to realize how much you value us and that as a result, when you call us to follow you, that we would give up our lives for you, that we would give up our lives for those around us, and that, Father, as we follow you, we will discover that you are the greatest gift and reward of that cost of discipleship. I pray for every single person here. They're not here by accident. They're not um, out there where doing whatever they could be doing, but they're here, Father, because they want to know you, and they want to know whether following you is worth the price. And I pray that as they continue this journey, that you will appear to them and that you would draw their hearts close to you so that they can discover just how lovable you truly are. Father, in this daily walk, um, sometimes we face difficulties and sufferings that make us wonder whether the price is truly worth it. And Father, in this moments, be very near to us and comfort us and give us the support that we need. Be with those who are sick and those who couldn't make it today. Um, and until we meet again and as we continue our discussion, I pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.